This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I made a definitive decision that I was absolutely going to ask for all of the help. I'm not going to be stoic. I'm not trying to do this shit by myself. Like, we're not doing that. Welcome to How To. I'm journalist and author Courtney Martin, sitting in for Carvel Wallace. I don't know if it's middle age, I'm 43, or catching up with folks after the worst of the pandemic, or just, well, real life, but there are quite a few people around me who have gotten cancer recently. Neighbors, dear friends, kids at my kid's school. It's terrifying and plants this little seed of helplessness in me every time I hear a new diagnosis. Since magically eliminating cancer doesn't seem to be an option, nor is swapping bodies, we are left trying to support as best we can. But the question is, how? Hi, I'm Gwendolyn, and I live in Philadelphia, and I am here to talk about supporting a friend. Gwendolyn is a friend of mine, and she met this friend of hers two decades ago in London, where they bonded over their intense graduate programs. We became uh, very close friends. There was a larger group of us, but like a small group of three of us who became um, very close. Does it quintessential story come to mind when you think about, you know, I think about like often people get tattoos together or like, you know, in these like intense moments when you're in some sort of crucible, like an academic, an intense academic program, like, or was there a late night you remember that you're like, that's when we realized we were in it for life? Oh my gosh. Um, the, well, there were many late nights. <laughs> we, uh, you know, I think it was our first time living so far away from home for many of us. We were both coming out or had recently come out. We also bonded over like the political situation, right? It was right after September 11th. Um, in those like couple years after, um, we like went to a lot of protests together. So I think we were really very much like trying to figure out our, um, our place in the world. As you can hear, this is not a friendship of convenience. This is one of those born-in-the-fire friendships that lasts a lifetime, even if it ebbs and flows. Which is why Gwendolyn aches to show up for her friend in a way that dignifies the depth of her love for her, especially because her friend has been through so much. Five years ago, her partner was diagnosed with breast cancer. You know, they made it through that. She's now in remission. And almost exactly five years later, I think, um, she was diagnosed herself. Since they maddeningly went through this once before, they're familiar with the resources they can tap into and have organized things like food trains. 
which is great. But Gwendolyn wants to do more. I think, too, as a single parent, I think a lot about this, too, about like asking for help. And it's really hard. I mean, you know, because like I think sometimes people are like, let you know, let me know anything I can do. And it's hard, like when it comes down to it, like what could you do <laughs> that, that is is important um, that would feel like support? Here to Help is someone who literally wrote the book on supporting your people. My name is Mia Birdsong. I wrote a book called How We Show Up and then got diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. Now, Mia is another dear friend of mine. And when she was diagnosed, I experienced all those feelings Gwendolyn was just voicing. I wanted to help but I didn't want to burden Mia with managing my help. Very few people know what they need from friends when they're facing down chemo. And even if they do, they definitely don't need to communicate it 50 times to all the people sending that inane text that we've all sent, let me know how I can help. However, Mia did not fall into that common cancer quagmire. She came up with something better. And her approach isn't just healing for a friend facing cancer. It's instructive for all kinds of moments when we need to show up for our people or be vulnerable enough to admit that we are the ones who need people to show up for us. Stick around for a masterclass in helping and being helped, which is of course to say loving and being loved. Turns out it's core to absolutely everything. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. I mean, the first thing I want to say, Gwendolyn, is I'm really sorry. I'm sorry that your friend is dealing with this. I'm sorry that you are dealing with this. This is somebody who you consider family. And I imagine it's also painful to be far away. Yeah. You know, there is this piece about what being sick is like emotionally and the kind of support we need for our mental health and our spirit. And the question I have is, is your friend like, is she feeling her feelings or is she kind of just like, this is the thing I need to get done and let me get through it and then deal with my feelings later? I mean, that's such a good question. And I think 
one of her coping mechanisms is to kind of withdraw a bit, um, just in general. Like I don't know even... what you're talking about. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, I mean, just in general, too. Like, not even sort of like, I mean, the, the other two friends, like, the other friend and I are often like, okay, how do we, like, who should we reach out to to get in touch? Um, and, like, mostly to check in, I am in touch with with her wife, with her partner. And I should say, too, and, like, one of the things that's different, although they've been through this before, is that uh, my friend is the like primary caretaker of of the kids, um, and her wife is the you know sort of I hate to use the term like breadwinner, but like Red works winner. outside the home. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, works outside the home, and so like that dynamic is very much different. I think, especially when we're thinking of caretaking. And is that? Do you feel like that's the role she's most comfortable with? Yeah. Right. So (laughs) then there's the whole piece here, which is about one um, having like not being able to be in that role. Yeah. Right. And then I think also it's the like allowing other people to do that thing for yourself. So often the roles that we have are part of our identity and there's this um, transition that happens. And any transition is a place where grief shows up. So just like having that awareness, I think is going to be helpful for her. And then the other thing is that, you know, we as Americans are kind of allergic to asking for help in general. And even if we are open to asking for help, we often don't know what kind of help we want. And this is where I think that as as loved ones, we have to kind of um, have some faith in our knowledge of our friends or our family member and just do things that we think might be helpful. <laughs> and and it can be that, like, you can say, hey, I would like to do this for you. Like, is that okay with you? Um, sometimes it really is just going ahead and doing the thing because you know the person is never going to ask for it mm-hmm. um, and may be uncomfortable with saying yes to it, but you actually know that it would bring them some comfort or ease. It requires a little bit of leaping, right, into the faith of the relationship. But I feel like when people are able to do that, even if it's not like actually what you want or it ends up not, you know, like if it's not quote unquote successful, it still demonstrates a willingness to be inside of like the interior of people's lives that I think is comforting and makes a little more room for the person who is sick to ask for help that would be helpful for them. Mm. Mia and I are in a really amazing women's group together. And we have another friend who's also um, gone through cancer quite recently. And I remember when she did her last treatment and she came to women's group, we sort of did a toast. And we were talking about how wise and strong she is, all of which is absolutely true. And she wisely sort of made space for it. Yeah, and my body's different and I'm still in pain and I'm really frustrated and I'm still figuring things out. And so I think there's something there, it seems to me, about not making the cancer patient into the hero who like feels some pressure to be like, yes, I'm so wise now, or just act super strong throughout the whole thing or super articulate about it. Yeah. And I think that that's hard because so much of the rhetoric that cancer patients put forward is about like their hero status. We have these very like simplistic, unnuanced approaches to thinking about and talking about cancer. Like cancer is the enemy, right? Like all of the like fuck cancer bumper stickers, whatever's right that come up. I'm like, cancer is your own body cells. To be clear, like I do not like it. (laughs) 
like I did not want want it, but it's my own self. Um, and in some ways, for me, I was like, it's a part of myself. You know, we all have parts of ourselves that like we don't like, right? We have parts of ourselves that are um, harmful or damaged or traumatized that show up in ways that are harmful or traumatizing or like not in alignment with you know our integrity. Um, and that's how I thought about cancer is like, I'm like, this is a part of myself. And I feel like the way that I navigated it was just like, what are the parts of my thinking about? Like, what are the parts of myself that I turn away from? What are the parts of myself that I are harmful and need to be healed, right? And like processed. But you know, for some people, they need to be all fuck cancer. And like, I think it's really about like following the lead of the person. It's also making me think, Mia, you know, we were talking about how these two partners have both had breast cancer now and that that's great experience. On the other hand, it reminds us that each person experiences an illness totally differently. And so it's important to have kind of this toolbox and you have come up with such a creative toolbox, some of which I want us to get into, but also knowing different tools are going to work for different people that no, no two people go through breast cancer in the same way. And so even though they know logistically what this is like, what kinds of treatments exist, probably, et cetera, the actual emotional experience and their needs and their ability to ask for what they need or even know what they need could be totally different. Yeah. You, I mean, they're absolutely obviously support that people need during the kind of crisis part. Um, But then there's the recovery from it. And I think during that period where you're not in the crisis is actually when you need a lot of the kind of support that you, Gwendolyn, can provide, which is that it is emotional, it's spirit, it is support that doesn't have to be in person because it's not the like material kind of practical support of food. And, you know, in my case, people making me exercise. And (laughs) (laughs) But there is this kind of aftermath of being sick where you and I, and I, and I'm, Oh, I'm starting to tear up. Oh my God. I was not expecting that. Um, where you're grieving. Oh, this is so good. I don't cry very often. Um, I, so I can attest <laughs> as, as one of Mia's friends. I can attest. I do not see you cry very often. Like my husband's seen me cry maybe a dozen times and we've been together for 20 years. Um, you're, you know, you're different. Your body is different. Um, I think this piece around identity and kind of like who you, who you show up as in your life and, and then who you are on the other side of it is different. And um, having room to grieve is really important. Oh my God, this is so good. You have to have no idea. Um, I've been grieving for a year and I'm only I only like in the last few weeks discovered that that's what I was doing. Um, Cause grief looks like a whole bunch of different things I've discovered. It doesn't always look like crying and sadness. It sometimes just looks like withdrawing <laughs> and um, anger. So I've been giving my grief space for the last few weeks, which is why I just was able to cry, which is amazing to Yay. me. <laughs> so anyway, my point is, there is a longer arc that you get to a longer path. You get to walk with your friend. That's not just around this moment where it sounds like she actually has a bunch of, of very practical support, but as you know, someone who's family with her as someone who is um, loved one, I think there is a way in which you can kind of hold that and just be ready to catch her, be ready to hold space for her when that grief emerges. 
It strikes me, Gwendolyn, that part of the story of the friendship of this beautiful crew has been grief, that you all have lost parents and been grieving together in your various ways. So in how are you hearing what Mia is saying? Are you kind of thinking about that differently? Yeah, no, I was I was thinking about making space. And and also like I have to I have to admit too, like of breathing this kind of sigh of relief of like because she had like maybe what is her last chemo treatment the other day. And so I was just thinking, oh, so I like I still can support, you know, like it just, you didn't, you didn't, totally. It's yeah, not, yeah, it's not like in that, like, I don't know. I really, I think that's so important too. And, and also like it has made me think about just relationships in general. And, and, yeah. and I think like going back to that grief point too of parents, like I remember like uh, friends who had similarly lost um, parents have been like, you know, everyone will be there in the, like the first month, but it's like six months later <laughs> or a yes. year later or, uh, you know, five years later that you're really going to be like, like, yeah, like you said, yeah. not even realize it maybe. Totally. And I think too that we're afraid of grief because we think it's going to swallow us up. Um, we think that if we if we allow ourselves to grieve, that we are never going to do anything else. Um, and I think one of the things that I have learned from people in my life who are very practiced in grief um, is that like grief is clearing the way. And I feel like I have more access to my joy and my pleasure and my delight when I can clear my grief, when I can like allow my grief to exist and to go through the waves of it that I do. Mia, can I ask you a really practical question about that? Yes, It's please. so powerful, but I'm thinking about in my own life, practicing this and you practicing it, Gwendolyn, with your friend. I feel like we've established, which is such a revelation to me, I have to say that supporting someone with an illness doesn't end with the final treatment. I mean, first of all, so many people have acute long-term illnesses, chronic illnesses that yep. like just keep going. And so there is no final treatment. But in this case, when we're talking about people with cancer, I think the conception is really after the last treatment, let's celebrate and pretend it never happened, essentially. I mean, that's kind of like our very American right. way of handling it. So first of all, we have learned today, thank God for Mia, that it does not end with the last treatment. I think one of the things I struggle with, and Gwendolyn, I'm wondering if this may resonate for you, is how and when to bring up grief with someone, especially someone who's more withdrawn or not just sort of like on the surface with their emotions. Can you give us any thoughts about like a very practical question you might ask that person yeah. or way of checking in? Because I fear like, am I re-triggering them? Were they having a great day? And then I'm like, you know, how are you feeling about your dad having died? And they're like, actually, I was compartmentalizing really well, <laughs> asshole. Thanks for bringing it up. Um, my best friend since third grade who's listening is like, I know exactly who you're talking about. Um, so any thoughts, practically speaking, on how to like signal to someone, I know your grief still exists and I still want to be here and, uh, you know, I'm with you, but not do it in a way that's jarring or triggering or that kind of thing. That's a really good question. Um, and let me be clear, like literally a few weeks ago, I just figured this out. So I'm not, I'm not a grief expert, but I am, I think, a grief denier expert. <laughs> um, you know, I had, a, I had a conversation with a very close friend recently. And what they said is that like, they knew something was going on with me. And 
they were waited until they felt like I could actually hear it, like that I was ready for it. I had this kind of, you know, retrospective <laughs> of folks who I knew were noticing. So I, now I was like, oh, I can, I can, they're ready to hear this. Like they knew before I did. So now that I know, I actually can be in it and know that they will, there's room that they have for, for my, to hold my grief. Gwendolyn, does that resonate with you when people have supported you around your dad's death? like the way in which you've wanted to be checked in on? Yeah, no, for sure. I think um, just knowing, like just acknowledging, you know, exactly. I think I think you're, you're totally right on. It's like, there's this idea, like it's over and like, let's move on to the next, yep. I don't know. You've had your three days off from work to right. <laughs> grieve a death. Yeah, and I think, t- I mean, I think that, you know, um, normalizing, right, that this is a transition that grief would accompany, allows people to make room for for their own experience of grief. There's this quote by Judith Butler. Um, they say, how do I know when mourning is successful? It has to do with the fact that you must recognize that mourning changes someone forever. Mm. And just recognizing that change has happened. So, yes. I mean, it just made I me like think a lot. Like I kept thinking about it over and over again with what you were saying about just yeah. like the change, like they're totally, you're not the same. And I feel like that alongside with like Octavia Butler's continual reminders to us that like God is change, right? That like the only thing that is certain is uncertainty. Yeah. And I think that that's a lot of what grief is like, it's the painful reminder, right? Of like, nothing is forever. Change is always. Oh, I love that quote so much. So we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we're going to dive into some practical methods of support. This is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. We're back with Gwendolyn and author Mia Birdsong. While writing her book, How We Show Up, Mia spent a lot of time thinking about building and tending to community, which she then applied to her own life. I was doing all of the work, right? I was 
thinking really intentionally about how I wanted to have chosen family and community in my life, especially in the context of this relentless push against that. Like you have to be vigilant about it. Which meant that Mia had a strong group of people around her when she was diagnosed with colon cancer in 2021. 20 minutes after I got diagnosed, I had a phone call with my friend Aisha, who Courtney knows, um, about a project we were working on. And I was, it was clear to me that I was going to have to like not do this thing or delay it. So I was like really apologetic. And I was like, I'm really sorry. I'm going to have to not work on this thing right now because I just found out I have cancer and I have to have surgery. And, and I was going to keep going about like how we were going to like change our calendar. <laughs> she, not surprisingly, was like, Mia, <laughs> I need you to pause for a minute. <laughs> because you just told me you have cancer <laughs> and and also you just found out. So she just like made us both take a breath. And in that breath, right, in that pause, I feel like this, a little bit of room opened up for me to be in the weight of what I had just found out 20 minutes before. I immediately felt like I was being accompanied. And I mean... Aisha had the meal train thing set up before we got off the phone. And then she circled up with three other friends of mine. The four of them became Mia's Care Squad. Not only is Care Squad a great name, but they really became the backbone of Mia's support system. They did things like drop off special meals and get the gloves she needed to help with the neuropathy caused by chemo, but they also did something really foundational and often overlooked. They took care of communication. So I have like multiple circles of community and then there were individuals. So they had a point person for each of the circles and then they had like the list of the individuals and anytime like information needed to be shared, like I would just tell them and then they would disseminate or if there was a request, they would disseminate. So a member of the care yeah. squad would contact me and then I would say to the women's group, if anyone's going to the grocery store, like Mia needs this this week or Mia's, yeah. you know, wants funny memes this week because she's going to be <laughs> sitting alone in the hospital for a while and she'd love to laugh a little bit more, like send her all your funniest stuff. So I wasn't communicating directly with Mia other than how she had told the care squad she wanted to be communicated with, which I think is a, a really important logistical piece totally. of the puzzle. And then the other piece was all the advice, right? Like I, I actually wanted a lot of advice because I ain't never done cancer before, right? Like people know some shit and I didn't want like all, like I was like, I don't want people telling me I need to like drink, you know, I don't know, copper or, you know, like <laughs> soak pennies in some water. And I don't know that anybody ever said that, but like, I was like, I was like, I want to be able to, to not actually have to talk to people while they're telling me about their miracle cures. <laughs> So we had a spreadsheet where everyone could put um, advice. And a lot of it was, you know, there was a little bit of the miracle cure stuff, but mostly it was like people who had had cancer talking about like stuff that worked for them or 
I mean, it was, it was amazing. Like it was actually super, super helpful to have a place for the, to go for that advice. And if there were men, people were like, you can totally call me or text me or whatever, if you want to talk about this. So that was really helpful. So I had people who were like paying attention to that. Um, I had an errand squad, right? So if I needed an errand run, there were all of these little practical things that I could re- make a request for. But like, so people got instruction, right? They knew what to do. People want to be useful. And it allowed them to be part of a thing where there was a system that was put in place that allowed them to take action. I could make requests without feeling like I was burdening an individual, right? Because I'm asking... Uh, I'm asking for something and I know that request goes out to dozens of people. And I was also like, I would write, you know, updates about what was going on. And like that went to everybody. And, you know, and people definitely reached out to me. It's not like I was like, like no one can talk to me. But people were able to get regular updates without having to ask me because I think folks did, you know, people don't know, like, do you want to talk about what's going on with you or do you not want to talk about it? How many times have you told people the update on like the surgery or the staging of your cancer? Like, like these are all the things that become hard to know, like, is this question okay to ask, right? So partly I was just giving people the information that they needed because we do give a shit about like what the doctors are saying, right? We want to know, is this person going to die? We're like, we need to know what stage the cancer is because people will be very vague and and also want to be really positive, right? About like what's going on. But we also, we want to be like, are they being positive because the doctors are like, you're going to be fine? Or are they being positive because like they're actually internally processing the fact that this is going to kill them at some point? And we want to know that, right? Because it helps us make meaning of it. Because of course, when someone we're close to and love is facing something that is life altering and potentially going to kill them, we are thinking about our own mortality. So it is, I feel like it is natural for us to have a bunch of questions about stuff so that we can like make meaning of things so that we can be doing our own processing and having information is helpful. But no, the person who is sick does not want to be telling, you know, 500 people having, having the same conversation like multiple times. And that, I feel like just to pull, draw that out a little bit, because I remember, especially a mutual friend of me and mine, Allison and I processing a lot when we found out you had cancer because yeah. we had all our feelings. Maybe it was about our own mortality, but also we just love you so much. And we were sort of like, what is going on? And like, how you know, and I think of it as sort of processing responsibly in a certain kind of way. Mm. It's like, we didn't need to do that processing with you at that moment. We didn't need to do that processing with your husband. Like thinking about who's the person right. for whom my less graceful or processed things that I need to say are responsible to say to and like let me go to that person and and I've heard yeah. of grieve out it's like grieve out care out process out like these I think of sort of concentric circles or something of a tree like how do you look towards that instead of putting it on the person or the person directly taking care of the cancer patient to like process totally. your shit Gwendolyn, how is this sitting with you? And do you have any other specific questions for Mia as you're hearing her talk about some of these logistics? I mean, a lot of it is resonating with me, not only in this situation, but just in life in general. As somebody who's an intentionally single parent, you know, my kid will often be like, 
you know, I, I have, I have like all these aunties. Like, I think I have the most aunties of anyone in my class. <laughs> and I'm like, that's by design, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yes. it's, it's the, it's like the intentionality of it and like the thoughtfulness of it. Um, so I really appreciate you like walking through all of that because it is so clear, like at every step, it's very intentional. It's, it, yeah, I really appreciate you, you walking that through. I think, the murkiness again comes in with thinking about like the longer term care when there can't be like the care squads and there can't you know yeah. there as we were talking about before um so like the longer term plan of 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 support yeah. i think the, the so the long the long the the traveling with the person part right is like so that there's the grief piece but there also is the recognizing and helping them come to an understanding about how their body might be different and like how it means they might move through the world differently than they used to and and what it means to be able to help somebody come to that realization and then like be a person who knows that i can imagine if i lived in a less bathroomed place right that that what it would mean to support me now would mean that like, if my friends were like, Hey, let's go do a thing. Like they would make sure that there's a bathroom wherever we're going. Right. There usually are. So I don't have to worry about it. But like, it's that kind of like thoughtfulness about the body that people occupy after illness, even if the treatment is done, that I think is also part of what comes up here. And I think for a lot of people who, who go through cancer, like there are often devastating things that like change them in really significant ways that are not supported by the world they walk through and having people in their lives who know that, right. Which is like how we should show up for anybody who has a disability again, makes you feel more seen. It makes you feel like acknowledged. It makes you feel like it's easier to ask for the help you need. It's easier to not think of yourself as a burden. It allows you to like integrate the new identity you have much more easily when the people around you can see it and acknowledge that they see it. I love that. It, it was making me think about how we often talk about like curb cuts, which were a gift of the disability justice movement, make a city more navigable for everybody makes it, you know, kids on scooters can get around the city and like all these people that were not, you know, the original intention of that legislation and that design shift. And if we lived in a culture that supported everybody to ask for help, to receive help, to slow down, to, you know, that 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 is good for people with cancer, but it would be good for literally everybody. everybody. This is just the totally. society we should live in. I want to drill in a tiny bit more on, Mia, you said following the lead of the person, which I am really hearing. And I also have noticed a paradox, like when you're talking about Aisha showing up for you, if she had been following the lead in that first phone call, she might have been like, okay, Mia just wants to talk logistics. She's not ready to like take a breath. Let me just sort of follow her flow where she's at. So I think there's this interesting like following the lead and also knowing your person and in insisting at certain moments on this might be uncomfortable, but for you, because you're thinking it's easier to be logistical right now, but I need you to pause. Yeah, I think it's actually, this is a great question. 
there's like a little bit of messiness here, right? There's a little bit of messiness around knowing when you like actually listen to what they say and when you're like, that sounds like some nonsense and I'm gonna do something else. There's so much faith and trust that's involved there. And I think that that, that is really a place that happens, that exi- the thing that exists in the relationships where we have tended to them, where we have like built this um, knowing of each other, where we have gone through shit with each other before, right? And Gwendolyn, like you have been family and chosen family, I feel like, you know, cause I'm family with a lot of people who like, I would not <laughs> do very many things for. So chosen family is a particularly like potent kind of love and commitment. And you've been chosen family with her for more than two decades. And there is a, a knowing that you have that I think you can really like lean into and trust. And you all have grieved together before. You have grieved kind of existential crisis of 9-11. You have grieved um, the loss of parents with each other. I imagine you have grieved like other transitions. This is just like another flavor of of grief that you all get to um, to do together and to walk with each other through. And I think that really leaning into your heart knowing and your trust of that relationship is going to help you figure out what she needs, even if she doesn't tell you. (laughs) I love that so much. In honor of that breath, I just want to thank you both so much. I'm kind of feeling like Aisha's in the room and your dad's in the room, Gwendolyn, and this beautiful friend is in the room who we've been thinking about abstractly, but concretely also. I just am so grateful for both of you and and what you brought today and especially your tears, Mia. Um, Oh God, thank you so much, y'all. I'm like, like, of course, of course I'm gonna cry like during a podcast. (laughs) As opposed to in the privacy of my, my own house. Thank you. Thank you both. This was really, really meaningful. Thank you. What a gift that conversation was. I'm thinking a lot, not just about how to show up more skillfully for my friends, but also how to get better at being someone who doesn't resist receiving help. And even with Mia's modeling, asks for it unapologetically and joyfully. What a different world it would be if we were more discerning in how we showed up and more clear when we needed to be shown up for, you know? I think we can make that world, not with casseroles, but with community and courage. I mean, nothing wrong with casseroles, but we can do better. What about you? Do you need a little support? Send us a note at howto at slate.com or leave us a voicemail at 646-495-4001. And we might have you on the show. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and a review and tell a friend. That helps us help more people. How To's executive producer is Derek John. Rosemary Belson, Kevin Bendis, and Jabari Butler produced this episode. Merritt Jacob is senior technical director. Charles Duhigg created the show. The great Carvel Wallace hosts the show. And I'm Courtney Martin. Thanks for listening. Listening.